Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual, episode 2000, 2,218, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there, Mark, I'll, I'll shut off Mr. Intro there. Episode 218, Friday, December the 3rd, 2021, December, Mark, December, what has happened to the year? Don't they just flick past, and that's a measure of how old we're getting, Brendan, that um, that the years don't last a full year anymore, they're just gone, Christmases tick around. And it's December. Only if all the decorations will have to go up. All the uh, gifts wrapped. Uh, the uh, the the vet. Do you guru. do the full on thing at home? Do you, do you, yes, do you start? Um, do, you, do you festoon the house with um, lights and? We try um, to make it a little bit in, like subtle. The- we don't try try not to get in. There is a little bit in the suburb we're in. There is a little bit of a, pardon my language, pissing contest about who can decorate their house the most outstandingly. And um, so we don't have any colours. We just have a row of sparkly lights and a, and a, a wreath on the door. Uh, well, we're probably fairly similar. I remember as a kid we used to, I used to love going to, or taking our kids actually um, when they were younger to, I'm sure you have the same in most suburbs as, or, or, or cities, there's certain streets where they do go full on don't they and everybody knows that you're going to visit you know smith street and that's where you go and see the christmas lights and you park a few streets away because it's so busy and you get out of the car and you you walk up and down and look at everybody's houses that are all flashing with their lights and the kids quite enjoyed that um some even yeah they'd certainly go overboard don't they remember some had snow machines and as some of our overseas listeners (laughs) would maybe forget that it's sometimes middle of summer here um, for Christmas in Australia. So, um, so yeah, pretty amazing sort of stuff. I am yes. a little bit... So there par- you go. I'm a, I'm a bit of a paradox when it comes to this, Brendan, because I'm very grinchy sometimes and then I wallow in it at other times, like, you know, love it and hate it. It's a bit of a complex relationship I have with Christmas. It's bittersweet that time of the year for me, isn't it, Mark? It's sort of, I feel exhilarated but also sometimes a little bit flat i don't know why um over the christmas well i felt a little bit flat earlier this week brendan um i am uh staying in brisbane at the moment and kate and i went for a little bit of a walk we've been doing a walk at the botanic gardens and um and we sat down had a coffee and um and some people started milling around shortly after and we thought oh we'll we'll hang around and see there must be some show on there must be a you know, a, outdoor. a lunchtime concert, yeah, an outdoor yes. event. Um, and before we knew it, we were stuck in the middle of an anti-vaccination protest <laughs> at, the, at the Brisbane Botanic Gardens. And 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 you turncoat. I know, I know. We were worried. We were we were doing the you know when people do that, hold their head down, look down, so they don't get on any of the cameras there. About we're doing that sort of thing, um, and. Um, and for a while, it seemed like people could sense that we were different because there was a little bit of a halo left around us. You know, no one wanted to be 
um, vaccinated by proximity, by by getting close to someone who had been vaccinated. Um, but um, but later in the morning, there was a, there was a crowd of I don't know fifteen hundred people and um, a lot of uh, a lot of um, classic Australian rock songs misappropriated for purposes other than their authors and singers intended. Um, and um, and yeah, Kate and I. Just, eventually reached a point of discomfort where we we slunk away to the fig trees in other parts of the botanic gardens uh well done mark well done <laughs> you did me proud <laughs> all right we, we let's jump into this very punchy episode mark just briefly uh buy now for christmas from the vet guru shop and uh, we have a new patron as well. So we haven't mentioned about our patron or patreon.com. Go to vetgurus.com and you'll see the link about help us and you can become a patron of the Vet Gurus. And what does that mean? It means flicking us a couple of dollars or a dollar or $10 or whatever you like regularly once a month. And we have a new $2 a month patron and we haven't had a new patron for a while. So thank you very much. We've sent a personal message to that person and um, it'd be great if they sent us a email back and said hello and um, a little bit about themselves. So we're always looking forward to support to help pay for our production costs. So that's fantastic, Mark. So there you go. That's my chit chat for this week, and I, ne- I think we need to jump into your first exciting news story, Mark. What have you got for us? Well, I'm just sending you a picture, even as we speak, Brendan, of one of my favourite animals, which triggered me to think about um, about this story. So uh, recently I went looking for hermit crabs and I found the beautiful big strawberry hermit crab on Lady Elliot Island, um, but... Um, But it turns out that hermit crabs are not the only soft-bodied animals who have used abandoned mollusk shells as a refugia. Um, And recently, um, there's there's a a long fossil history, 170 million years uh, has been recognised that uh, uh, various animals, particularly hermit crabs, have been using the hermit lifestyle, using other shells for protection. But recently, and the the fossils that are involved in this research fascinate me, Brendan, because, you know, I've been looking at some fossil sites in Queensland. um, and, And to find something like this that demonstrates um, another species that used uh, these shells 500 million years ago, tripling the amount of time that we know uh, unused mollusk shells have been used as uh, hermit refuges. Um, and especially important is the species um, that 500 million years ago, and I love the illustration in this article, um, the uh, the species were the pri, 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 I'm just looking for the word, the um, well, just tell us what their common name is. <laughs> I don't want to do that, Brendan. The priapulid, the penis worms, um, so named priapulid worms, um, which when you see the artist's impression, um, you can't really appreciate it from the fossil nearly as well as the artist's impression, um, but you can understand why these worms wanted somewhere to hide, I think, Brendan. 
Let's not worm shame, Mark. Um, <laughs> but it's a long time, isn't it? 180 million years or 300 billion year, million years they beat um, some of the um, those hermit crabs by, didn't they, according to this article? As far as that. And how do they select their shells, Mark? What's the story with that? The, 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 well, it's, it's much the same sort of thing as the, um, as the hermit crabs that they look to uh, find a shell that's, you know, appropriate to their size. Um, and, um, and they carry the shells around uh, much like hermit crabs. Um, and um, was there a specific point you were hoping to make no. about the way they chose their shells? Uh, just that, that, that well, they... One of your favourite um, words, the Goldilocks—they call them a Goldilocks um, animal or something, don't they? Um, because they—they they just happen to select the the right shell at the right size at the right time for themselves. Yeah, that's what they were talking about. I wonder. So basically, you, they're opportunistic with with selecting shells. Yeah, there there is a recognised thing with particularly with land hermit crabs where they line up. Um, you know, where where a, a crab that uh, finds a shell that's a couple of sizes too big will hang around that shell waiting for uh, a hermit crab that will use it who will then abandon their shell, which will be the right size for them. And so there's been circumstances where four or five hermit crabs hang around one shell waiting for the key hermit crab to show up and start the cascade of changes. And I wonder whether that happened with penis worms, whether there was a queue of four or five penis worms hanging around one shell waiting for the right-sized penis worm to show up. Fighting over their shells. I don't know, Mark. I will leave our listeners to mull over that while I jump into my news story. It's a very quick one, hopefully, uh, about the penguin population on the Falklands Island, Mark. And... For those who don't know, Falkland Islands off South America and the British Overseas Territory. And um, those of you of our vintage will probably remember the Falklands War where Argentina decided to um, reappropriate the island. And during that time, around about, well, tens of thousands, I think, of mines were placed there, Mark. And um, interestingly enough, Penguins are thriving, even though there's still thousands and thousands of landmines still there. And it's a home to approximately one million penguins there. And the good news is they're light enough, Mark, that they can go flitting around uh, where all the minefields are and not blow themselves up, up, Mark. So they're just the right size. That's evolution at work there, Mark. If they were a little bit bigger, perhaps they wouldn't be still around um, on the Falklands. I wonder what sort of pressure you need on the pressure pad to set off one of those mines, Mark. Well, it'd be interesting because um, the, uh, the there are a few king penguins on uh, the Falkland Islands um, and um, and I would imagine those Probably a few less than they <laughs> used to be. <laughs> I'd imagine they'd be close to the amount of pressure. Um, but um, but the, it is a wonderful place, the Falkland Islands. Um, uh, as you know, I, Kate and I visited there uh, um, a couple of years ago yes. and, um, and uh, the, the penguin population is, um, well, it's... It's epic. It's legendary. It uh, is um, is mind numbingly special. 
It's a lot of penguins. Um, just finally, I know I said it was going to be quick, this article. Um, it always looks fairly bleak there. Is it? Is that the natural sort of vegetation there, just sort of grasslands and that, or was it originally forested or not? Or is no, it just, no. Just, um, it, is, yeah. it looks okay. a lot like that. Like, and um, the other thing that's interesting is that um, – so those pictures where they they uh, show the bleakness, um, they there's a lot of um, uh, farming, sheep farming goes on, and and you will regularly be literally looking at um, at uh, a flock of sheep and a, uh, a flock of penguins at the same time. Um, it's a it's a strange pl- and and obviously our tour guides steered us away from the minefields um, but it is um it's a, a strange place as well as a uh, enchanting place i'd love to go back brendan you and i'd love to take you there you should you can um, take me there um Reminds me of that band, Flock of Seagulls, but uh, now we're getting right off the target there. Let's jump into our main topic, Mark, and it's one that um, I think this is a good one, and um, it's, well, it's not for the animal, but it's a condition that we see fairly frequently in our practice, and I'm sure you do as well, and that's tail problems in bearded dragons, specifically the tail necrosis or necrosis that we see in bearded dragons, and I presume you see a fair fair number of these um, every year. Is that correct, Mark? It's a regularly spotted thing. We do regularly see them, Brendan. And I think that's why we wanted to have this as a main topic um, this week because it's it's something we need to have a bit of a yarn about mark a bit of a chat about the potential causes for this and theories mark this is where all your theories will will come to the fore mark um, i do have so a theory i'll be interested to see yes. what you think about it so these are bit of dragons that that we well probably commonly presented in my practice mark where um the client says my bitter dragon has tail rot is is what they say and they bring in a bitter dragon it has variations of of of, um um, tail tip necrosis um some quite severe where a fair percentage of the tail up to half the length of the tail from the tail tip to the to the cloacal region is um completely dead mark and and often withered away um that the soft tissue there and we just have almost like a almost like a mummified um, um, skeleton there, don't we, of that distal tail tip. Um, So it's not unusual to have them presented like that. Early on ones um, would be just the tip of the tail looking um, almost inflamed sometimes, perhaps um, a little bit erythemic or or, um, maybe a little bit swollen, um, tender to the touch um, and a colour change of the skin there or the scales there. Um, Is is that sort of what you see with these cases as well, Mike? Do you see that? And variations in between those two extremes there. Um, But it it is a little bit frustrating that we do see a, a fair percentage of them where the the lizard has obviously had this tail issue for for many weeks, if not months, um, and then they finally decide to bring the animal into the clinic. A lot of our clients report, oh, the the lizard must have got its tail caught in the door or caught under some piece of cage furniture. Um, that's often, uh, uh, you know, the the telephone call that books the appointment is often a. Um, you know, my lizard's had an accident in the enclosure with its tail and now it's injured. But they, they there's not a time when people see the injury. 
Um, and I think that's a big clue to, to some of the potential um, etiology. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what the reason why I was hesitating there is what, what do you say to the client um, in that initial consultation? Um, what's your first sort of comments to them? They're twofold. We need to chop two, this two. Two. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, um, And you, you're exactly – the first focus is to specifically treat the problem. And there is a little bit of education about the nature of the process, maybe not the cause in the first instance, um, that you need to uh, provide some education about um, the way that we need to treat them because of that whole, you know, you gave an excellent description of um, the, you know, necrotic bit, the inflamed bit, the healthy bit, um, and just doing, first of all, specifically talking about that process and the way we're going to uh, do this, we, and we do need to do surgery to solve the problem. But then more, more widely, um, I think, as we have so many other times in so many other topics, um, we revert to first principles and talk about husbandry because I do think, I don't think this is a structural enclosure problem, but I think the husbandry of the animal plays a role in it. And I think there are some things that people need to do to um, to lessen the chance of recurrence, Brendan. Yes, and that's where we get on to our our theories and our, our potential causes for it. But if we back up a little bit, um, the surgery, Mark, um, let's just briefly talk about that process, um, our techniques for doing that, and everybody has slightly different technique. Then my technique with these is to, well, um, we look for potential underlying causes, which we'll assume we've done, um, but the actual surgical process is taking the tail um, up at least one vertebra higher than where we see the the damage as um, finished, um, and we're trying to get some decent um, normal tissue there. Um, we're making, or I'm making a almost like an elliptoid incision over the over the tail there with that animal under general anaesthesia, um, and we're debriding. Um, we're taking a little bit of the. the the bone a little bit further up towards the base of the tail so we do have a soft tissue little buffer there that i'm then suturing over there and i'm suturing it over with non-absorbable sutures um, to provide it and, and leaving that in for six to eight weeks like we do with any suturing or sutures in a, in a reptile for their skin repair and plus or minus padding that afterwards um and i'll, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this mark um I've I've had some of these that um, that the tail necrosis then um, continues or starts afresh um, after the surgery, and sometimes I've been suspicious that maybe it's my technique of the surgery or putting a bandage on too tight or um, not putting a bandage on. Um, these days I've gone back to basically. Hard either not putting a bandage on there or just putting a little bit of a an opsite dressing spray on there mark over the, over the sutures there and then a very 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 light um, um, bit of non-stick dressing on there after that um, for that first few days or week or so whereas in the past at one stage I was putting a fairly ha heavily padded bandage on that and changing it every few days to every week what's your sort of 
thoughts on the bandaging of those, Mark, and any comments on the surgical technique that you do? Well, I, I agree with you entirely. Where um, when I first started doing these, I carried over my technique from you know, a, a dog, for example, where I would put a fairly significant protective bandage yes. with significant cushioning. I, I'm, I, a lot of these now I will even leave with uh, nothing but, like you said, a, a waterproof spray from the op-site dressing. Um, I just want to limit the chance of the wound getting infected. Um, in terms of uh, how I place the incision, um, I, I from the top if I look down on the tail um, then I'm doing a reasonably deep V uh, you know the incision looks like a, a deep V with the the, uh, the vertebra the last the remaining vertebra where I'm going to leave a vertebra at the top of the V um, and as you said I, I do a gently curved if from the lateral view I do a gently curved um, you know from the top it might be um, a little bit behind the vertebra and then it extends significantly by the, the middle of the tail looking at it laterally, it curves back. Um, and that gives me a good piece of the, the caudal musculature to say so over the, the, that last vertebra. Um, the ventral vein, the, the caudal vein, the one that we access to draw blood sometimes, I have to pay a little bit of attention to make sure um, uh, that that is um, is uh, the the artery associated with the vein is not um, bleeding, and particularly with some of these that get more uh, cranial along the tail, that amount of blood can be significant, and does take a little bit of time to dissect out that. Uh, artery and make sure that it's tied off or um, there's some uh, radiosurgery applied to it to prevent it bleeding. Um, but they tend to go pretty well. But it, I'm interested in your comment about the ones that um, that recur. That uh, And it is one of the comments that I, in trying to educate the clients, I point out that, um, that we do try and maintain as much of the healthy tissue and remove the damaged tissue. But, um, but that can be a very, um, very difficult line to draw. And I think there are times that I have personally tried to hang on to too much tail um, and hung on to a little bit of compromised tissue that then, you know, whether it um, uh, gets infected or has ongoing problems, um, it does lead to a, a recurrence and a need for a repeat surgery that's a little bit more aggressive. What do you? Th where do you think these come from, Brendan? What's your theory on on them getting set off? It won't be as good as your theory, whatever that is, Mark. As you're sure, you you'll it's be probably you'll exactly be, the same. I might be. You'll, you'll be spot on. Um, well. I think you touched on it at the start, husbandry. So we do do worry about, you know, is there inadequacies, not just one thing that's happening with that setup with that animal. And that's everything from what's the whole broad spectrum from, from enclosure hygiene. Um, because we, I suppose going back one step again is um, what do we see in these tails, Mark? If we if we send off or we try and culture that, I think it's often a one of one of two common things. Um, it it can be fungal infections, Mark, and they send in sort of fungal infection of all the bearded dragon fung, fungi that we can get, but also bacterial um, as well. Um, and w with those, they're the most common um, presentations that we see if we send off that whole tail um, and 
they can be then organisms that are sitting there in that environment that may not otherwise be causing a problem unless that animal's debilitated and on a on a poor diet, poor poor cleaning protocol in that in that enclosure. But I reckon there's also possibility of um, you know um, one of your favourite theories with a lot of these things is the the genetics of these animals as well. Maybe there's something going on there with these as well. Um, because what what other theories are out there? Um, poor circulation, I think, is 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 a possibility, and, and logically, it might potentially makes sense there that that perhaps we've got um, inadequate um, supply um, or, or or return of, of of nutrients to the tip of that tail, so the extremities are being affected. And and I like that. That that's probably the yeah. one that um, yeah. I'm going to lean on the most. I think that a lot of yeah. these lizards have um, a bacterial throm- thromboembolic disease, and the, sh- the one of the unique things about uh, reptile tails is that that compared to say our um, our dogs, for example, is that the gradually tapering nature of reptile tails means that the blood vessels get smaller and smaller towards the end and so a little chunk of thrombus with bacteria floating around in the circulation as as often happens with uh, reptiles with poor husbandry um, there are many locations in the body that can end up um, and you know we we recognize the strange circulation of the gonads and some of the the locations in the vertebra where these uh, thrombus can end up and uh, um, and trigger local infections after uh, um, hematogenous spread, but I, that's my I I reckon a lot of these animals, first of all, are not fit um, and therefore have relatively poor circulation, and then have a, um, a, a hema. A, um, a septic event where they have hematogenous spread, thrombus ends up in the tail and, and then they die, which is the critical yes. thing, I think, with these lizards is to talk about how the tail is important. It's important we do surgery to solve the problem, but it's a, we've got to talk globally about the health of the lizard and why yes. that might be triggered. Absolutely, and and go through that, that husbandry. Um, think about doing, which is... A little bit tricky, isn't it? Doing full bloods on that animal before you yeah. do that surgery. So you're taking a blood sample from the the viable section of the tail, hoping that 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 isn't compromising um, distally from where you've taken that blood, um, and and um, looking for underlying issues um, on those bloods as well. Yeah, I suppose my only other comment with those is, you know, why if 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 we're see, we're seeing a lot of these generally um with where it is just the tail affected but we certainly see bearded dragons with necrosis and issues with with those feet and the toes and that but typically with those they're they're bite wounds and they are traumatic events from cage mates etc mark so with the theory and this is something that's always um, bothered me with the theory about the blood supply etc being the reason for the tail necrosis why don't we then in a fair number of those individuals get the same problems with with um, um, fingertip and you know toe necrosis as well with them, Mark? Um, or do you think we do see them? Um, I just would no, no, I... see a greater percentage of them. I think that there's a, um, a, a a pattern of preferred location that these thrombuses go, and I think that um, that the the um, limbs 
for whatever reason, um, the circulation in those doesn't lend itself to to um, uh, those thrombuses ending ending up in those parts of the body. Um, I'd be interesting to see whether there's some sort of like laminar flow pattern that means that something in the circulation is likely to end up in the you know those preferred locations, the gonads, the the um, the, the vertebra, or the the um, the the parenchymatous internal organs, the liver, spleen, or um, the tail. I, that's my and, suspicion. Yes, and I think related to that, wouldn't it be nice to get blood pressure measurements on all of these? You know, on a large range of them. And I think um, that you allude there to something that um, these, I you look online and and see the lizards that uh, that they are morbidly obese. These lizards are not fit. Um, and so that definitely, whatever the underlying etiology is, um, that the poor fitness, the poor cardiovascular fitness and the, um, the uh, increased body fat are all going to exacerbate any circulatory problems that occur for other reasons. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I think we've covered it. <laughs> we've touched on it. We've We've... It's a, it's an interesting one. So I, 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 my take home messages for this condition is um, look look for underlying issues in that animal. Look at the general husbandry. Um, what's right? What's wrong with that individual? Um, I do caution the client that most of these do really well, but we do get the odd one that we do the surgery and it does come back no matter what technique we use and and how far up the length of the the tail that um, we do take it and as part of that conversation with the client we're talking about potentially that some of those underlying theories and factors and and maybe that's why it's recurring in those rather than the the poor surgical um, technique of Dr Brendan um, with those so um, I think it is important to chat to the client about those sorts of things with it and um um, having said that, um, there's lots of bearded dragons climbing around in their enclosure that have had partial toe amputations that do fantastically well um, and live a fruitful life until whatever other disease catches them up in the end there, Mark. It is, Any, it is a gratifying, like unlike there's a lot of other reptile conditions, isn't there, that... Um, that you sort of feel a little bit hopeless because you've made the diagnosis and and the lizard has to live with it. But the, it is true that the majority of these um, go well after surgery. And if you can look beyond the immediate problem and help the people with the husbandry, um, you'll help a significant number of those other ones that might have gone bad to go better. Yep, absolutely. And if you've had any experience with this, um, please send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com, or you have another theory about the whole this whole syndrome in bearded dragons, the tail necrosis, and um, we look forward to hearing from, from you. And with that, we are out of here. Talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. 
Thanks again and see you next time. 